So I told you several weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago even, about how wonderfully obedient Ray and I were in coming to Pennsylvania, that, um, that we had applied to every church opening in Pennsylvania that there was, right? Because that's what we did after knowing God clearly told each of us separately we were supposed to come. So we accept the, the position at, um, at the church in Mannheim. Um, but before that, we had actually put our house on the market. Um, we had a house in Louisville. We um, put, Ray was set to graduate from seminary in May of 2009. And so we put our house on the market at, in early April of that year. Um, and the, we didn't visit um, up here until the, the week he graduated. So it was in May before we visited up here. Um, but we started the process for, you know, started talking to our realtor in March and she was like, this would be the time to list your house. This is the time people are looking, all these great things. So we put the house on the market in April thinking that we would be able to move after he finished seminary. Um, that way we could move up here to Pennsylvania and, and begin working at the church. And my job was going to allow me to continue working from home on a trial basis. It was a nine month, we were gonna try nine months uh, work from home. My boss really wanted it to work out. Um, but she had, she had to do it conditionally for her boss to, to say that it would work. Um, so put the house on the market in April and we start having showings. And I have a not quite one year old and a not quite three year old and we have to keep the house clean and we have to keep leaving the house um, for all these showings that, that keep happening. And I'm, I'm going to read you the, um, well, so in the, in the time we're there, we end up in November, still trying to sell the house. I now have a one and a three-year-old because they've both had their birthdays um, and, and still trying to sell the house. So we have decided it is time and we just need to make the move and trust that God was going to take care of it, that we were going to have a house payment in Kentucky and a rent payment here, but God was gonna provide because we knew that was what God wanted. So we came, um, my job was going really well. The work from home portion was, was great. I was accomplishing what needed to be accomplished. Meetings were still able to occur. We were budgeting so that I could um, I could fly in to do some field inspections instead of being able to, to drive. So we were budgeting for these things. And then, uh, so that was November, but it was probably January that my boss was like, my boss says we can go through March and then you're done. He doesn't want to set the precedent of working from home. Irony of ironies nowadays, right? But. But at that point in time, it was, we don't want to set the precedent of, of people working from home. 
And so my job was going to end in March. My job, which was paying all the bills for the house that was still on the market, still being shown multiple times a week, and, and we didn't know what we were gonna do. And so we kept praying, and we kept praying, and we kept praying. And finally, I'm gonna read you my Facebook post from February 28th, 2010. After 10 months, two weeks, and five days, and over 125 showings, we got an offer on our house. We are praising God for his perfect timing and answers to prayer. Continue praying, the counteroffer is accepted and everything goes smoothly, but his timing is perfect and will work out great with the end of my job on March 27th and our full-scale homeowner's insurance being canceled by the company on March 29th. So here it is, February 28th, usually takes about four weeks to get to a closing date. Do you know what four weeks from, March, from February 28th is? March 28th? And did you see those dates? My job was gonna end on March 27th. Our homeowner's insurance, because the house was empty, was going to be canceled on March 29th. The company wasn't willing to work with us for anything. Um, and here we had an offer accepted. And it was God's perfect timing in that. We waited 10 months, two weeks, and five days for God's perfect timing to work out. We had no idea, I mean, our poor realtor, 125 showings. I mean, it was crazy. And we had no idea what God was doing in that time. But also in that time, we learned that Catherine had hearing loss and was going to need extra, um, extra support from early intervention. She was going to need speech therapy. She was going to need medical um, appointments, all sorts of different things. And if I was working, they were willing to go into a daycare to do a lot of that, but then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to work with her at home on it. my whole paycheck was going to pay for the house in Kentucky, right? But God, right? It's just an amazing story for us of, of how God not only worked around our disobedience in coming to Pennsylvania, but then blessed our obedience in coming four months before the house was sold. Um, our, our lives would be completely different if he, had, if he had done it our way. So when we left last week, we left Esther, and the king had pretty much thought he had taken care of things, right? Well, let me kill Haman. And so he did. And the king was like, mm, sounds good to me. Taken care of, problem solved, right? Haman was dead, but that murderous edict was still very much alive. 
And so long after wicked people are gone, the consequences of their evil words and deeds live on. Even today, innocent people are suffering because of the guilty people who lie in their graves. So two dinner parties are behind her. Haman is dead, but in a matter of months, so are all of the Jews. Unless someone or something intervened, within months, the Persians would attack the Jews and wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, just for some context, there were about 15 million Jews among the estimated 100 million people in the empire. That was the numbers I, I was able to find. Um, and so they're, they're odd, the odds were definitely against God's people. Um, so I, don't, I think I wrote down the wrong starting point. So whoever has Esther 8, 1 and 2, can you also read Esther chapter 7, verse 10? Yes, please. And so we had these two feasts. We had Haman hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then that last part of verse 10, the wrath of the king was abated. Right? So the king, the king was ready to be done. He thought he was good. So what, what, what was the outcome of those feasts of Esther? She had the two feasts. What, what happened from it? Right. The law wasn't changed, but at this point, the king doesn't have any sort of. He thinks he's done. He's kind of washed his hands of it, in a way. So, what did it accomplish? What did those feasts accomplish? I mean, the truth came out. The truth came out. Haman's, like, wickedness, and, and also Esther's, now the king knows Esther's a Jew. Right, Esther is, he knows Esther's a Jew. He knows that Mordecai is her, her cousin slash father. And we know that Haman was killed, right? His, he, he paid for his wickedness. And what happened to all of Haman's possessions? They went to Esther. This would have been property, slaves, any money he had, even, even his family now had to serve Esther, right? So that wife that was sort of his, uh, Haman's advisor of the not so great information is now the slave to, to Esther. Uh, and then what happened to his position? In the, it was given to Mordecai the ring and the responsibilities. And um, it was funny because a couple of the commentators mentioned it was before the ring probably was even cold from the hand of Haman. Like here it was just almost immediately handed over to Mordecai. 
Now, when a traitor, in, according to ancient historians, whenever a traitor was executed, the throne appropriated his property. And so Ahasuerus could have kept the property for himself, um, but he chose to give it to Esther. It was probably not just being generous for him. It was probably um, a way to, to sort of atone for his foolishness. Um, and, and to sort of pay off his guilt of making her so upset, right? So what do you think Esther felt? Did she feel satisfaction after the king gave the property of Haman to her? And there's no, there's no like, it's not a, this is a what, would, what do you think, not a check your Bible question. I'm seeing lots of head shakes. Thank you. My students in physics, I'm like, I'm asking you a yes or no question. Here's how you respond. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, you don't have to like yell out an answer, just acknowledge that I asked, right? So thank you for acknowledging that I asked. Yeah, it, now she, I don't think she was satisfied and we'll see that that she wasn't satisfied. Um, I, don't, I don't know that she um, hated that she got the property. I, I mean, I don't think it was like sickening to her to get it or anything like that. And just as a side note, because we are a room full of women, um, in Persia, women were able to own and manage property of their own. So this was not, um, not a strange thing not out of the ordinary in any way. Um, they, they could hold paying jobs based on their experience. And so this was, this was not an out of the ordinary thing for Esther to then have property. Um, although Esther did put Mordecai over it. Um, yes. Yes, it probably was not something that she was necessarily excited over, I would agree. Um, but I think she was also sort of looking at it as, I can then gift this to Mordecai and be okay. And so I, that was sort of my thought. I don't know. Yeah, lemonade out of a lemon. That's exactly right. Yeah, so now Ahasuerus knows both Esther and Mordecai are Jews. Then he learns that they are actually cousins slash the adoptee um, relationship. That, that idea when it says um, Esther had told what he was to her, the tone of that suggests that it was also the father figure and not just the, not just the cousin. Um, and, and she would have told King Ahasuerus just how much Mordecai meant to her, not just, oh yeah, he's my dad. Um, so now we have a Jewish queen and basically a Jewish prime minister, right? He's, they, they are both in the palace. Politically, the Jews were in a great position, but they were still at great risk. And so if this story, if the point of this story were just the conflict between Haman and Esther and Mordecai, 
our story would be done, but we're not done. We know that there's more to it, um, and, and we've, we've forgotten, or, or it sort of lulls us into this idea that we, we have forgotten the lives of the Jews. And King Ahasuerus probably was, was thinking, I, my anger, the, my wrath is abated, I'm, I'm good. I've made up for my guilt, I'm good, right? Um, but then good old Esther, um, and she comes back before the, the king. Um, Esther 8, verses 3 through 6. And so in, in Esther, so here Esther is going back before the king yet again. Um, in, in chapter 5, she stood before the king uh, when she first went and approached him and invited him to the first feast. At her feasts, she sat with him, sat in front of him, and here she falls before him weeping and begging. Um, and then let's read Esther 4, 8. And I'll think back for a minute. <clears throat> did I give that one to somebody? I did not. I will read it. I can read it. That would be great, Crystal. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the Jews for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him and so Mordecai told Esther, go into the king's presence and do what? Beg. Beg and plead with him on behalf of her people. And it's that same, that same word from Esther 4.8 is used to describe what she does here in, in chapter 8. So until now, she'd made requests, but she hadn't begged. She hadn't pleaded. She waited until now to have an emotional reaction because if she had reacted emotionally earlier, it could have been disastrous. And so this was a part of her plan. I mean, she was definitely emotional. Being emotional is, is not the time to make decisions, but she had a plan. And so here she is revealing her emotions as part of that plan. To her, the most important thing in life was not her comfort, but the Jews' deliverance, and she couldn't rest until the matter was settled. She knew that she was safe. She was protected by the palace. She knew that Mordecai was now safe. He was now protected by the palace. Nobody was going to try to attack either of them. 
but everybody else was still at risk. Uh, but, and she, while she couldn't do everything, she knew she could do something, and so she did. She approached the throne of the king, and she asked him to reverse the edict that Haman had devised. And the king didn't completely resolve the issue initially, right? So she came back, she was persistent, and asked even more. Esther's example encourages us to come to God's throne and intercede on behalf of others, especially the nations of the world where lost souls need to be delivered from death. She begs, and she connects two ideas together. She says, to be pleased with me is to be pleased with my plan. And she says, and to love me is to do what I ask. Now she knew going in that the law couldn't be repealed. She didn't use the word law. She asked Ahasuerus to overrule Haman's dispatches, his letters. She downplayed Haman's authority, presenting his actions in less formal and binding terms as evil schemes that the king could simply overrule. Now she knew better, but she's trying to give him an out. It's all part of her plan. But Esther's final plea was that if she was spared, but her people were slaughtered, her life would not be worth living. Um, I lost my spot. Okay, uh, Esther 8, 7, and 8. So how did the king respond? It was like, yeah, he, he was not unsympathetic to her cause, but he did, he did say, I've, I've already, you know, we don't know the tone here, tone of voice is important sometimes. So it could have been, I already gave you Haman's life, I gave you his property, what more do you want, woman? Right? That could have been how he was asking, how he was saying it. Or it could have been, I have given you Haman's life. I have given you his property. Let's finish this and take care of the people too. Right? He, he knew what was going on. He understood. And the king reminded, reminded them that he had already done all these things to show he was favorably disposed toward the Jews. I mean, he had a Jewish prime minister that was openly Jewish. But the, the problem was they couldn't just cancel the first edict. That was the way the laws worked. The voice of the king was the law of the land and the king could do no wrong. He could not revoke his edict, but he could issue a new decree that would favor the Jews. And so the king, um, he, he says, I'm going to give you the ability to fix this. You write a new law 
um, and, and you take care of this. Now, part of that is we know he can't do anything without help, right? <laughs> he needed somebody else to do the, the hard work for him. And so um, let's read Esther 8, 9 through 14. Mm -hmm. and taken the hand of the wicked. Yeah. That's right. That's right. The, it, it took time, but the king's heart was softened, and he couldn't just change it, but he could, he could do something to fix it. Yeah, and that is an encouragement to us. So Esther 8, 9 through 14. Did I not give that one out either? Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. That'll be great. <laughs> Uh, 14. And so when, when does this occur? When, when do, are the scribes summoned? But what day does it actually say, like in the passage? The 23rd day of the third month. If you look back at your, uh, what page is this? 48, right, page 48. That's your, your calendar, your Hebrew calendar, right? And so when we look at the, um, the uh, let me find the right day, Haman's, Haman's edict left on the 13th day of Nisan, right? Right up here, the first month. 
and then was to be carried out uh, on the 13th day of Adar, down here, the very bottom, right? And so, so then we go on the, what was it, the 23rd, 23rd day, there's still time, but they've, the Jews have been living with this for two months at this point, of knowing that they were going to be destroyed. And so there's, but there's still time. And so he sends out this edict um, 70 days after the first edict. And it was, um, yeah, 70 days. Okay, got there. And so there we, we see that there was urgency for Mordecai and for Esther. Um, what are some of the ways that we can tell that there was urgency in their response? What are some of the words in that passage that are used? Swift horses. They wanted them to go fast. Hurriedly, yeah. And it, even the beginning says the, the king's scribes were summoned at that time. Like, they got permission. Boom, let's take them, let's do this. Right? They, I, I, I imagine, right, we, we just put ourselves in Esther's position. Here she hears this response from the king. You go, you take care of it. Now, she and, she and Mordecai knew King Ahasuerus. They would have had an idea that he would have asked for help on what to do. So they had a plan. There's no way that they had a plan for everything else, and then they just went into the king and said, hey, we know you can't reverse your edict, but you need to do that. Like, they had a plan. So just imagine royal protocol, right? She goes in, she is begging the king. He reaches out his scepter and then he tells her, well, go take care of it. And she can't just immediately stand up and run out of the room, right? She has to wait to be dismissed. So just imagine just the, what she was feeling and experiencing, and, and there's a good chance that Mordecai was in the room too, being the, the highest official for the king. He would have known what was, what was going on. He would have heard as well, he can't just leave, right? So there was, because you can't even turn your back on the king. So they would have had to walk backwards out of the room. They couldn't just hitch up their robes and run out the door, right? Now, in t today's world, it's hard to, to really fathom the urgency of sending couriers on the fastest horses. I mean, we have these things, right? We can call, we can message, we can we can do all sorts of things and immediately get, you know, you post something on social media and it's out to the world in no time. Um, you know, things becoming Facebook official and, and things like that, right? 
So it's hard for us to imagine needing to be so hurried when they had nine months, right? But the Persian Empire was so vast that it would take three months for a message to reach the whole land. So all this is happening, and there are still Jews and Persians that don't know what's going on. But they also needed time to prepare. The Jews were not warriors. They were not soldiers uh, and, and would not have been allowed to be trained in that way uh, when Persia took them over. So they would have had no battle experience. And so Esther and Mordecai knew that they needed to get this out and get it out fast. So they wrote an edict for the Jews to be able to fight back. And he, Mordecai drafted the decree. He gave them permission to defend themselves against anybody who tried to kill them or take their property. Now, the Jews were allowed to assemble and defend themselves, but they were not allowed to be the aggressors. They were not allowed to attack, only to defend. And so if we compare the new edict that's there in in the verses we just read in chapter 8, to the original edict by Haman, there is an intentional mirroring in the decree. It's the same wording for destroy, kill, and annihilate. It did not remove the threat against the Jews, and the Jews were not given permission to just murder the Persians, but they were allowed to defend themselves to the death. Now, the citizens of Persia, they didn't need to hire a lawyer to figure out what this new edict meant. And you can be sure they got the message, do not attack the Jews on March 13th or whatever day it was. It's one thing to write a liberating new edict and quite another to get the message out to the people. So Mordecai had it translated, had it sent on the swift horses, sent hurriedly. And while it sounds harsh, the people knew that if the Jews had permission to defend themselves, then their lives were at just as much risk as the ones they were trying to kill. Um, Esther 8, 15 through 17. Now, what were the Jews experiencing when the first edict came out? Fear, mourning, weeping, right? Let's read Esther 4, 1 through 3.
went as far as the front of the king's gate, so no one might, so no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's commanded the tree arise, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When we look at where they were, and even at the beginning of this chapter, that Esther entered the king's presence in tears. And then we end with rejoicing and feasting. Uh, in, in that paragraph, in verses 15 through 17, in one way or another, happiness of, of some sort, happiness, joy, rejoicing, is mentioned seven times. Royal relief. Yeah. Yeah, they went from mourning to joy. Um, Isaiah 61.3. Did I give that one? Because I can't remember if I was going to read it or not. Okay, perfect. He has sent me to provide for all those who grieve in Zion, to give them crowns instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of tears of grief, and clothes of praise instead of a spirit of weakness. They will be called God promises beauty from ashes. And it even in that, in, in that verse in Isaiah says, splendid clothes instead of sackcloth, right? Uh, what about Psalm 30, 11 through 12? And so what does it say in, what does the psalmist say? I believe it's David, if I remember correctly. Um, in, that the Jews, that it doesn't say about what the Jews are doing. Right? The psalmist is crying out to God and praising God. And it just says the Jews had light and gladness and joy. And they shouted and rejoiced. Did they praise God? It is quite possible. Um, it's just not recorded in the narrative. But that's the, that's the result, it's that excitement when they knew that they had a chance. And the other thing that's happening in here, he, Mordecai leaves the presence of the king in a uniform that is worthy of his office. He didn't wear sackcloth anymore. He didn't even wear the borrowed clothes that Esther sent out for him. But they were new robes prepared especially for him in those official royal colors. Um, and, um, but, but I want us to look at Exodus 28, verses 1 through 6. And as this passage is read... Think about the similarities in, in that passage to, to Esther 8.15 uh, with what happened with Mordecai.
So in, in Exodus 28, that's verses 1 through 6, we see how they're supposed to clothe Aaron and the priests, Aaron's sons, all as, as priests. And when we compare that to what with, with Mordecai in uh, Esther chapter 8, what were some of the things that were the same? Colors. They were supposed to be in these robes of blue and, and purple. And the, um, the golden crown here that it talks about in Esther would have actually been a, a large turban type of thing, that large head thing. It wouldn't have been a crown like we think of today. And so that was also something that, that was mentioned. They had a, a turban uh, and, and different things that talked about being gold, having gold woven in. Um, Hashverosh thought he was just giving Mordecai prominence. And the Jews could look at that and see him as wearing similar to the garments of a priest. It would have been a reminder to them. So Ahasuerus didn't have that intention, but he dressed Mordecai as a priest and presented him to the people, much like Aaron and his descendants presented themselves to the Israelites after serving God in the temple. And it was a makeover that Mordecai would never have imagined, but one that was planned, uh, that was planned by God from the beginning. And so God took the morning and he turned it to joy. And while we can take hope in that, there is something that we, um, I, I don't believe that God gave us scripture just to make us feel good. And so there are challenges for us from this passage. Like, like Ray and I, and many of our family and friends prayed for the selling of our house for 10 months, two weeks, and five days. There were times that it was hard to see God at work. And I know that there are times that you are praying for something and you are struggling to see God work. Years long, that we pray for somebody's salvation, right? Sometimes we are tempted to stop praying. More than once, Ray and I, and usually it was just one or the other, and the other one would encourage, no, this is where God called us. We were ready to just forget the whole thing and not come, not move. We were comfortable where we were living, we had a nice house in a nice neighborhood, near family, we could have just stopped and given up. But Esther's response to King Ahasuerus and continuing to plead for her heart's desire should challenge us to be like the widow, the persistent widow in Luke 18, one through five. We have to keep praying. And Esther's burden for her people could not be hidden. She didn't attempt to cover it. The full depth of her emotions was on display. She was begging 
and pleading, and there was nothing reserved about it. We have no reason to fear being transparent before the Lord with the depths of our feelings. Where do you think those emotions came from? Right? God gave them to us. We need to let him know why we feel what we do and what that we feel what we do. And so our challenge that we need to think about is Esther had a concern, a genuine concern for people. Romans 9 tells us that Paul had so much compassion for non-believers that he was willing to trade his own salvation so that no Jews would perish. Now sometimes it's, it's easy. We have seasons of concern for the lost. Then something else captures our attention and we just don't think about it anymore for a while, right? Uh, Adoniram Judson, he was the founder of one of the first missions organizations in America and, and was an early missionary to be sent out, I believe it was to Burma in Africa, if I remember correctly. Um, he says, or he wrote, how do Christians discharge this trust committed to them? They let three-fourths of the world sleep the sleep of death, ignorant of the simple truth that a Savior died for them. Content if they can be useful in their little circle of their acquaintances, they quietly sit and see whole nations perish for lack of knowledge. Here's the prayer we need to be praying for ourselves. Jesus, help me feel as much compassion for the lost as you felt for me. Now, not all of us are called to go. Totally understand that. That's a whole nother story between Ray and I and our relationship. I'm not saying we all need to just drop everything, sell everything, and go to Burma. We are called, every single one of us, to make disciples. We are called to be praying that people don't just come to Christ, but they know, they, they grow in Christ. Jerry Bridges tells us we are not to be a terminus point for the gospel, but rather a way station in its progress to the ends of the earth. God intends that everyone who has embraced the gospel become a part of the great enterprise of spreading the gospel. What our particular part in this great enterprise may, may be will vary from person to person, but all of us should be involved. And so there's, there's part of the challenge for you, right? We need to be concerned for people and we need to be persistent in praying for them. But then we see also the idea of, of the Jews are given a chance and they respond with joy when they're allowed to fight back. Here's, here's the thing that, that struck me this week as we're thinking through our times in, in prayer, praying for these people who are lost, praying for our houses to sell for 10 months, two weeks, and five days. Those things that are those, those long-suffering things, the Jews prayed or responded with joy when they were given a chance to fight back. As believers, we have more than just a chance. 
We have victory because of Jesus Christ. Landon Down says, our hope is certain. In fact, I often say our hope is not fingers crossed, hoping my team will win the game, but thumbs up. Our hope is definite. We have no doubts that Christ has already won the war, and in him, so will we. We do not fight from a position of defeat, but from one of deliverance. And so we need to rely on Christ's power for our victory and our hope in our prayers. And now you are dismissed to your small groups.